Okay, welcome, my friend, to the next episode here, the Red Delta Project live stream and podcast here on the RDP YouTube channel, where we are simplifying fitness by observing the fundamental principles of mother and human nature that govern your results. I'm Matt Schifferly. Before we jump into today's topic, which is all about building more muscle and strength with grind style isometrics, first, we got to pay the bills. First off, I'm wearing my new shirt here, my buddy who I've been training for a couple of years has started this new kind of fitness lifestyle t-shirt company and uh, probably wearing one of his great examples here, Meet Me at the Bar. I really like this. Link is down below. I promised I'd kind of share the love with uh, his promotion a little bit. He's got some cool designs, a lot of new stuff coming out. Check it out down below. Also, all of my books down below for isometrics that we're going to be referencing, as well as pre-orders for the new book coming out in one week's time, one week from tomorrow, Be Fit, Live Free. This is the new book that I've written. It is the fundamental approach to fitness in written form. Everything I've been talking about for the past several years about how to be fit and live free through a fundamental approach to fitness, all in this one handy dandy 120 some odd pages right here. So you can watch every video, podcast, and blog post I've made for the past couple of years, or simply read this book in like, I think it take about an hour, hour and a half or so. Links to all that stuff is down below, as well as references to the resources I'm going to be mentioning today, because we are talking about isometrics, building muscle and strength. And I know there's a lot of critics out there about building muscle and strength with isometrics. Hell, I used to be one of them. I used to uh, be one of those, hey, you can't build much muscle with isometrics and might be good for skills or beginners and things like that. Years ago, I even remember there was a gentleman who came into Taekwondo one time and he's like, dude, I got this new strength training device. I'm really excited about it. And I made it for myself. I'm like, cool, awesome, bring it on in. Let me check this out. And basically what he had made was your classic ISO chain device. He had a platform he stood on, he had a, a rope system that you could adjust with like a prusik knot, a simple handle. And he even knew to overcome cortical inhibition because he had a couple of those solo flex, uh, I guess you could call them cams. They're basically like a, a very thick rubber band at the base. So he got a little bit of a stretch in the band to overcome the cortical inhibition and make his muscles work all that much harder. And he's like, check this out. I can do everything. I can do presses. I can do deadlifts. I can do squats. I can do curls, overhead presses. He's showing me all this stuff. And I was kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever. Sure. And I wish I could go back in time and doctor would be like, holy smokes, dude, you know what you have here. This is a classic ISO chain. This is one of the best ways for directly challenging your neuromuscular output and capacity, which is how you fundamentally build muscle and strength. This is great can you make me one? And of course I dismissed it. And it was many years later until I finally realized what he of course had. And uh, that's kind of been the story of my life throughout my entire fitness career. Things come across my desk or people who are experts in their field will say, this is how it works. And this is what you should pay attention to. And the ignorant younger self that I was, was always like, okay, yeah, sure. Fine. Whatever. And then through my own exploration and experimentation, eventually coming to the same conclusions. I was like, oh man, I should have paid attention to what these people were saying about diet, what they were saying about exercise. I would have saved myself a whole lot of effort and trouble and injury in the past if I just listened to these people who were further ahead of the path than me. But I digress because we are talking today not about building muscle and strength with isometrics. We are talking about building muscle and strength more so, amplifying up to the ninth degree with grind style 
isometrics. This is something you're going to want to pay attention to as the latest developments in the Red Delta project, folks, because I'm doing a lot of new evolutionary stuff, new website, new videos, new everything. And one of the things that is new is that the grind style method, even though it's been initially about calisthenics training, naturally, uh, for the past several years, the grind style method can be applied to any strength training modality. And we're going to be talking today about how to use it with isometrics to make it safer, more enjoyable, more satisfying, and more effective for building muscle and strength. So you're getting even more out of it. And also, just as a little side note, I'll be coming out with a video later this week about how you can apply the grind style method to other modalities, particularly like with classic weightlifting stuff, cable machines, dumbbells, free weights, bands, that sort of thing. So that way you can use it for anything because ultimately grind style is about maximizing a stimulus in our workouts for building muscle and strength. It is not method specific. It's not specific to calisthenics. It's not specific to isometrics. It can be applied to weight machines, to lifting logs in the woods, if you like. And that's one of the great things about fundamental approaches in fitness is that you don't need to worry about all the superficial nuances that we always stress over. Like, should I lift kettlebells versus dumbbells? Or what about calisthenics versus weight machines? And what, what about the you know high carb versus this type of diet? Last week, we were asked about carnivore versus vegan and stuff like this. And for the most part, all of these different considerations just have us running around in circles because even though we have different modalities, we're fundamentally using them the same way, which means they're all gonna produce roughly the same results because nothing really changes in your results until you impact things on the fundamental level. And once you do that, not only do you get the best results, but you also have the freedom to basically do whatever the hell you want. Use whatever methods you want. Do whatever dietary habits you like. You like more of an animal uh, style protein source, carnivory kind of diet. Great. You want to go vegan? Great. You want to eat several meals a day? Awesome. You want to do one meal a day? Awesome. Whatever. We get so caught up in the superficial nuanced details in our fitness culture that most of the time we're changing out a hundred different things and we're not really doing anything different. I was just speaking with a client earlier this week and he was like, okay, I've been doing this in my workout. And then I started doing this and then I did this and this guy on YouTube says this and this guy, uh, then I followed this other guy and all blah, blah, blah. I'm like, dude, all you're doing is rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Like you're not doing anything different on the fundamental level, even though it feels like you're making all these changes. I know I'm starting to rant a little bit, but that's the power of a fundamental approach. And grind style is all about recognizing how exercise actually works. It doesn't work because of the equipment you use or the exercises you use or whether you do three sets of 10 or five by five or any of that stuff. It works because you create an effective stimulus. That is why training works from ping pong to powerlifting. No matter what training you're doing, if you know what kind of stimulus you're trying to generate and you have an adaptable approach so you can stand the best chance of generating that stimulus, you're going to get the results you want regardless of any other variables. And you're then free to use the variables that align best for you, work with your schedule, your preferences, your abilities, all those sorts of things. And as, uh, as always, I'm gonna be answering your questions as a reminder, put a hey mat in the uh, start of your question so that way I know it's directed to me and that way it's uh, not 
discussing between each other. Cause I love how you guys are talking to each other a lot during these uh, shows and uh, helping each other out. But right off, Cristobal saying, hey Matt, glad to see you again, same you. What is your opinion on uh, lengthened partial for muscle growth? There's recent data out there that shows that a partial range of motion is as good as full range of motion. Well, good for what would be the good question to ask? You know, whenever we're looking at something, it's like, okay, it's just as good or it's not as good at stuff. What are we judging as a metric of basically output or result? You know, if you came to me and you're like, yeah, but partial is not good nearly as much for range of motion training, for skill and being able to contract the muscle in certain things. So think of it this way, though. Range of motion is a progressive element that I talk about in my book, Smart Bodyweight Training. Right? We have nine progressive elements, particularly when it comes to calisthenics, but basically these apply to most any training modality. And range of motion is one of the progressive elements. It's one of the ways that we can adjust our training to make it easier or harder in several uh, aspects like mobility, stability, strength, and so on. Now, you're going to get a lot of folks out there saying one way is best, but of course that's complete nonsense because it's always a question of best for what versus what's the context versus what's the objective because some things range of motion matters a lot. Some things range of motion doesn't really matter at all. Some things shorter range of motion is going to be better. Some things bigger range of motion is going to be better. But of course, this is nuanced and it's complicated and it's tedious and it's a lot more harder to tweeze out. And most people just don't have the time and the energy for it. So they just default with the lazy approach of saying one way is better than the other. So here's the way you want to look at it. Generally, in my experience, people are better off using more range. When you have the option on the table, more range is going to be better, generally. Now, one of the tenets of grind style approaches is do things the hard way. Hey, I, I just updated the website and I have the three tenets of the grind style method. Tenant number one, it's not about working hard, it's about creating a stimulus. Tenant number two is essentially use inefficient techniques, aka doing it the hard way, which means your weights are going to go down, your reps are going to go down, your time is going to, basically you're not going to be able to do the exercise as well. And that's a good thing. Why? Because when we're trying to create a stimulus, remember tenant number one, when we're trying to create a stimulus, it's usually easier to create a stimulus when we use things inefficiently. I mean, that's the whole point of weight, you know? It's like when I'm doing pull-ups here on the bar and I got my Kinsui weight vest on, you'd be well within your rights to be like, dude, you know you could do more reps if you didn't have that weight vest on. I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like the joke my friends and I, we used to kind of chide. Uh, sometimes we'd go to the, the climbing gym in Vermont and be like, you know, it'd be easier to get up there if we just used a ladder. You know, why don't we just use a ladder and just climb up there on the ladder? Why are we grabbing on these little gurbins? Like, that's kind of the point is to make it challenging, right? And when we are trying to train our body for building muscle and strength, we're trying to create a stimulus with our muscular output and capacity. And it's a lot easier to do that when you make the exercise just really freaking hard. And shorter range of motion is typically easier. I don't like doing things the easy way. I want to do it the hard way. So that's generally the way I always approach it. Like, yeah, you can give me all the science about what's going on and stuff, but basically it's like, is it harder using a bigger range of motion on the muscle? Yes, good, then that's what I want. Now, sometimes you use shorter range of motion for the sake of regression. It happens a lot in the progressive calisthenics world is use partial range of motion if you can't do the full thing. Uh, sometimes you'll use sh shorter range of motion to avoid 
things like a injury or a, maybe a recovery. I was just working with a, one of my long-term clients. She had surgery on her shoulder. Doctor said, don't go beyond this range of motion. I was like, okay, we're not going beyond that range of motion. So there's time and a place for everything, of course, but generally you're going to get more from more range. Bottom line. And some people would be like, yeah, but it's the same thing and everything. It's like, so what? You know, it's going to be more from more range. And don't let your ego come across. You know, a lot of times people are like, well, if you use shorter range of motion, you can use more weight. Yeah, that's a bad thing. <laughs> now, if you were in a contest and you wanted to lift more weight to win a contest, okay, that's a totally different scenario. You're now lifting for a completely different result. You're not doing it for muscle and strength. You're doing it to win the contest. But uh, in that case, that then yeah, use the shortest range of motion you can get a lot away with in the rules of the contest because you want to win the contest. But when you are training for a stimulus, you want to do the exact opposite of what you want to do. That would make you basically win a contest. You want things to be inefficient. So bigger range of motion there, my friend, just a long and the short of it. X-Way is saying, question, what do you like more, ladders or pyramids for the grind? What kind of isometrics is your favorite? So when we, so let's get a little bit more into the fundamental structure of the grind style approach. Okay. Grind style approach. Again, it's all about helping you create the strongest stimulus possible for building muscle and strength in your workout. Now I say possible because every workout we come to this, basically come to the table with a different set of circumstances. Sometimes you can do more work. Sometimes you can do less. Sometimes you're stronger. Sometimes you're weaker. So that's why the third tenant of the grind style method is to use an adaptable approach to training. So that way you're not forcing yourself to follow a dogmatic program. Because if I give you a certain amount of work, because a lot of times the advice or the programs that we follow have nothing to do with actually getting a good workout in. They're not about having an effective workout. They're just about basically doing a workout to the rules of the workout. And they're based on workload. How many sets should I do? How long should I work out? How many miles should I run? That sort of thing. Now that does influence the stimulus you're having, but no matter what number I give you for how much work you're doing, it's probably going to be misaligned and maybe even flat out wrong a lot of the times. Okay, sometimes you can do more work, sometimes you can do less work, depending on energy, depending on time, depending on proficiency, depending on a whole host of other factors. So any number that I give you for a static amount of work is going to be off a lot. And so you're either going to say, do a little bit of work, in which case you're under training much of the time, or do a lot of work, in which case you may be overdoing it a lot of the time, and you're never gonna quite get it right. But if you have an adaptable approach that gives you a flexible ability to do as much work as you can or proficiently do, then you're always going to be hitting the nail right on the head. And that's why when we're using a grind style approach, we want that adaptability. So we have the four phases of our workouts because the rules of neuromuscular proficiency state A, you can only work a muscle to the degree you can engage it. And so if you have trouble engaging your muscle in question, let's say your lats, which most people do, almost nothing you do will ever work very well. You'll never be able to grow it very much. It'll never get very strong. What you do will work to some degree, but never very much, never very much. But once you improve that neuromuscular activation, almost anything you do work. I mean, you know, I know guys who built their legs up walking because their neuromuscular activation in their quads is insane. It's like, Jason, dear God, man, you're like Tom Platts. What are you doing for your quads? Hiking? just walking in the woods and like, holy smokes. And people are like, it's genetics, it's genetics. No, it's because my boy has got huge abilities to drive tension to his legs. 
that's why he's got big, big thighs. So that's why stage one of all of our workouts is engagement, activation practices, techniques. Then, of course, you're only as strong as you are stable. If you go to any sort of strength seminar, doesn't matter what the modality is, calisthenics, bands, a strongman, whatever, 90% of the information there, I guarantee you, is not about getting stronger. It's about becoming more stable. Because once you become more stable, strength just comes automatically. It's real easy to get stronger if you improve your stability. Real easy. But if you're unstable, good luck. It's almost never going to happen. So that's why phase two in our grind style workouts is all about promoting and improving stability. And no, we're not standing on BOSU balls and balance discs. It's just simple shift work that also helps to promote coordination and mobility. Then of course we have our strength or proficiency phase where we're working on how well uh, we can improve our output, our neuromuscular output, nine times out of 10 for you folks, that's gonna be strength. So keep the weight heavy, keep the short durations. And we're trying to keep fatigue kind of at bay during that phase in the workout because fatigue compromises output. It compromises your ability to do the thing well. This is where skills go into play. If you're a calisthenics skills guy as well, that's your proficiency phase. And you do that as much as you can, as long as you're relatively proficient in doing the thing. And then finally, you have your capacity phase. And this is where you're working to extend your muscular work capacity. And that's where you get much more of the stimulus for muscle growth. So it's basically engage, stabilize, improve, grow. That's your four-step process. Engage, stabilize, improve your proficiency and grow. And it happens in that order in your workouts. It covers all of the bases you need and it ensures that you're building everything up from the ground up. So it ensures a lot more long-term progress and ensures better stability. Tension control helps to protect the joints, makes your workouts a hell of a lot more satisfying, a lot more effective, and it also ensures much longer term progress as well. Okay, that's a general overview. On to the question here. So ladders and pyramids. So when we're ramping up and coming back down and stuff, the drop sets and stuff, that's more about challenging our muscular work capacity. But with the pyramid, you are you know, ramping up. So when we're ramping up our ability to produce strength, that's an output variation. So that would be the proficiency phase of things. And then when you're coming back down, that's a capacity phase of things. So basically what you're doing is you're just taking those two phases and you're putting them together. Real good micro workout strategy. I, I like to do this a lot with clients when it comes to really easy to select weight uh, machines, like weight stacks. So we'll start on a lightweight and you start ramping up and, you, and I'll just say, we're going as heavy as you can until you can't do five reps anymore. And we'll rest as needed kind of thing. You're ramping up, ramping up, ramping up. And then you get to that point where you're like, okay, I can barely get five. Okay, good. We're going to stop there. And we're just going to keep on that until you can't do five anymore. So that's our capacity. We're working on our, excuse me, misspoke there. That's our output. That's our strength. That's our proficiency. That's that phase. And then once they start to be like, okay, now I'm starting to wear out. Good. Then we come back down and that's where we're challenging our muscular work capacity. How much of it can you do? Your endurance, in other words. Right. So basically what you're doing is you're just taking those two phases, putting them together, which makes it really time efficient. And I think it's a very, very, very smart strategy for when you're doing this, especially with dynamic work. Isometrics is going to be a little bit different, which we're going to be talking about applying the grind style methodology to isometrics here in a minute. But the long story short, awesome. I like it a whole heck of a lot. Just make sure what I would do if I were you is ramp up 
reach that peak and then stay at that peak of the pyramid or the ladder or whatever, keep it there and get the practice you can. When we're doing our proficiency stage in a grind style approach, don't back out of it too early. You wanna be there as long as you possibly can be because you're practicing. Proficiency is all about practice. So you practice it because strength is a skill. It is very much a skill. So you want to be getting as much as you can out of that. But once you start to get tired and you're like, okay, my ability to have my output is getting compromised just because I'm getting tired because you're working really hard. Well, then you just blast yourself into your capacity, which is again, a lot easier to do once you've done all that work. So long story short, that was a good way to kind of lead into a general overview of the grind style methodology. Again, I got more on the website that explains it up, but it's going to be uh, a really good and efficient way to program your workouts. Cristobal is saying, uh, hey Matt, for injury prevention, in addition, in adding isolation work for some body parts like biceps, a good idea. Okay, so here's how this works fundamentally in the grind style approach. Now, when we are, well, I'll just put this in. I love isolation work. I love single joint stuff. I love bicep curls. I did a set of them, two sets of them today, actually. Love it. Wonderful. Awesome. But we've got to program it right. We've got to put it in a good place. Now, in the grind style methodology, isolation in quotes, because it's really not isolation. It's more single joint work. Remember, don't isolate, integrate. Even if you're doing bicep curls, still engage your back, still engage your core and your hips, especially if you're doing standing style bicep work. It's going to make it safer and more effective. But you put that in the capacity realm. So for example, in my workout today, I was doing archer style pull-ups and I was doing them on rings so I could rotate back and forth. And I was doing sets of four. So it was one, two, three, four, just getting as much weight and strength as I could on a single arm. And I did that until I started to kind of falter out. I think I got like four sets of that. And I was like, okay, good. Now I'm starting to get tired. Now I shift. And what I did was I got on some suspension straps and I did a series of rows and I kept it. So again, when we're working capacity, I like to keep the repetitions a little higher. So I got like about 15 or so. And then once I was like really grinding it out, and, uh, then I backed it up and then I just blasted whatever was left in my biceps with a series of curls. My biceps are still feeling <laughs> like they're still really tired. I picked up a, a glass uh, about an hour later and it was kind of shaking a little bit because it's just blasting whatever's left in the muscle. So yeah, it's a good idea, but you got to program it well. You got to program it so that it's not so much a safety thing, but it's not wasting your time. Like I wouldn't give someone bicep curls at the beginning of their workout because you're so fresh and you're so strong at that point. And if you're like, but I want to build the muscle, I'm not really trying to make my work output all that much higher. I just want to really get a good pump and everything. Well, that's a lot harder to do when you're totally fresh. You got to use a lot more weight or resistance and you got to do more repetitions and stuff. It's a lot easier at the end of the workout. You're already halfway fried. You just got to cross that finish line, which is why I put it at the end. And you don't want to have your proficiency stuff there because if you did like bicep curls and you were just like, yeah, all right, right to failure, going really hard and heavy in my biceps. Okay, good. Time to hit those muscle ups. I've been trying to get good on the muscle ups. I'm like, with what? Your biceps are fried. Your back is still fresh. Your chest and shoulders and triceps are still fresh, but your biceps are now a liability in your ability to have proficiency and your muscular output for the muscle ups. So you just compromised your ability to effectively fatigue your biceps and you compromised your ability to effectively do your muscle ups. Flip around. 
It's like, yeah, it's a lot better for me to practice muscle ups when I'm relatively fresh. Great, good. Now you're getting the strongest stimulus for your proficiency. Okay, now I'm starting to get really tired. Everything's really burning out and blasting out. It's like, good. Now you go into your curls because they're already like 70% fried. Now you just put the cherry on top and just drive it home, which is a lot easier. I mean, I was barely leaning back on those suspension curls. I was like, oh, gee, dear Lord, I don't have much lift in the biceps. I don't need much resistance at all. Yeah, and that made it real easy for me to blast the hell out of things. All right, Oliver's coming on saying, hey, Matt, do you ever do weighted calisthenics anymore? I know you did it many years, but what about the past years and now? Oh, yeah, sure. I still practice. I mean, it's one of the three modalities in grind style calisthenics. Progressive calisthenics, weighted calisthenics, and suspension calisthenics. Yeah, I don't do a whole lot of it uh, just because of a, an efficiency thing. A lot of times I find myself uh, at the calisthenics gym that I work at. We don't have any weighted equipment there. So it's like, okay, I'm not using weighted equipment. Uh, but yeah, I still do it. I did, um, what was the last time I did something? Uh, I did, the other day I did something. I, I'm blanking on it. But yeah, I, I did some weighted weighted dips and stuff. So I, I do it here and there. I use it almost more of a supplemental nature than anything else. Progressive and suspension calisthenics are still more of my bread and butter. Spicy J with the Jack Garfields coming on saying, yo, Matt, finally been able to catch one of these. Welcome, my friend. Happy to have you on board. Uh, how would you incorporate handstand progressions against a wall and grind style to build shoulders? It's a little mind uh, muscle instability, I think. Okay, so let's say you're like, I want to build my shoulders. I want to build my, my uh, ability to do handstands and everything. How would I go about that? Let's walk you through a programming session. Okay, first and foremost, we got to engage the muscles properly for this. So I would oftentimes, the standard engagement exercise for your push chain is I get people lay on the floor like a push-up and I have them drive their hands into the floor. But with the handstand, you're going a little more specificity. So what I would do is just kind of angle your back to the wall and push against the wall, kind of like you're doing handstand kind of thing. Get the shoulders on, get your back on, get your shoulders back, triceps engaged, upper trap engagement, glute, hamstring, all the stuff that you know you need to have engaged during a good handstand, that's what you're practicing turning it on. Do that you know, for a, a minute or so until you feel like those muscles are well engaged. Then what I do is some bear crawls, some like GMB bear crawls, where you're basically up in a pike position and you're really with each step stabilizing on one arm at a time. Or you could even do like a 45 degree walk across the wall style handstand lateral walk. Anything where you're basically crawling, shifting, maybe do some uh, scapular handstand push-ups a little bit. You're trying to do some shifting and engage for the stability in that. Okay, so that's your stability phase there. All right, so now you get into the bread and butter. Now, the question is, are you trying to do, let me look at the question here again. Uh, incorporate handstand progressions against a wall and grind style to build the shoulders. So are we practicing the proficiency of handstand push-up strength? Or are we trying to progress more of like the skill, quote unquote, of handstands we're trying to balance? That depends on the exercise you would do. Now, if you're, you're talking about building up the shoulders, so let's assume it's more of the dynamic side. So what I would do is do handstand push-up variant that you can do like five to six reps with. Maybe that's a pike push-up. Maybe that's feet elevated on a box. Maybe that's regular handstand push-ups. Or usually I progress it through range of motion. Remember, we were talking about range of motion earlier. So I would put a yoga block down and you 
bring the top of your head or your forehead if you want it a little harder down to that. And I would just keep doing that until you start to get tired. And then from there, I would finish off with basically your uh, classic pike handstand, pike push-ups, maybe regular push-ups, uh, maybe some you know overhead suspension uh, work if you like or something just to fry out the shoulders. Or you could just simply get up into a handstand and just be like, can I hold it for a minute? <laughs> Do an isometric finisher. Isometrics are great finishers. So just go up there and just go until your arms are a quivering mess and then you you got to come on down so that's how i would program that for handstand style shoulder building work right there master dave saying hey matt i think chin-ups in my shoulders uh well, excuse me i do chin-ups in my shoulders feel good pull-ups overhand grip not at all feels like my shoulders are going to rip any tips on the issue yeah get your shoulders back more your scaps particularly okay so you're probably changing your scapular orientation in some way shape or form uh, basically bring things in. Also bring your hands in. You know, a lot of times people are talking about wide grip and stuff. I don't do wide grip most of anything these days. Again, it's kind of a say the leverage on your, your joints is just higher whenever your hands are wider apart. I mean, the martial arts, you know, we put people's arms here when we want to hurt them. <laughs> we want to create leverage on the shoulder to make them, you know, hurt their shoulders. If you want to protect yourself, you keep it in close. So, if you're talking about overhand, I would say go as narrow as possible. And remember that your back muscles adduct your shoulder blades in. So don't hunch up and come forward. And keep it nice and tight. Okay, so when you are talking about isometrics, right? All you got to do is know the basic programming for grind style, which I talked about. We've got engagement, stability, proficiency and capacity. So we just do that with isometrics, but there is a few little nuances on how we can do it. And it's even a little more efficient than other types of training. And because it's not dynamic, it's a lot simpler because of what you're doing. So first and foremost, engagement. Now isometrics is one of the best ways to practice neuromuscular engagement, bar none, bar none. So when you're talking about isometrics, let's say we've got our handy world fit ISO strap, the ISO trainer, what we do is we basically warm up with putting tension in the exercise. Let's say we're doing a standard overhead press. Okay, great. We want to build up the shoulders. Good. So you're standing and you're doing overhead press. Then you just start off with modest amounts of tension. Don't make the mistake a lot of people make with isometrics where they're like, yeah, this sucker can put an infinite amount of resistance against my muscles. So I'm going to max out right from the get-go. Now it takes a bit for your nervous system to ramp up and warm up and everything. And as always, whenever we get towards the highest levels of either our muscular output or our capacity, we typically go with whatever neuromuscular pathways we're well habituated with. So if you're not used to engaging your glutes and your abs and you're keeping your shoulders back when doing overhead press work, as soon as you go maxed out, you're gonna do the exact same thing all over again, warts and all. So this is a time when we're practicing, okay, yeah, trying to engage my shoulders, but oh yeah, also remember, I'm trying to get my glutes and my abs engaged and my lats. Okay, good. That's more stable. And it's a lot easier to do that when you're not trying to max out your capacity or your output. So you just do that a few times to kind of warming things up, feeling like it's getting engaged, good integration throughout the entire body. Stability though, is a little bit different. Now we can do stability exercises like we normally do with shift work and stuff like that. But with isometrics, the more important thing to consider is not so much 
doing different exercises, but making sure that we're stabilizing with what we're using as far as the exercise and the equipment goes. So in this case, like the overhead press on the ISO trainer, if I'm standing on the strap itself, that's not the most stable environment to be in because the strap is pushing inwards on the sides of my feet. And depending on my footwear that I'm wearing, it may not be all that practical. So this is why one of the best ways to build muscle and strength from an equipment standpoint and isometrics is to have a platform that you're standing on. Something solid, something very, very uh, structured, something <clears throat> stable that you can drive on. Now, the platform that comes with the Isomax is great for this, but I've also used like aerobic steps. They work really well. You just run the strap underneath the step. Some people have even just used planks of wood, you know, for that. I, I was training a guy one time and we were outside and he had a, uh, like a deck. And so we just ran the strap underneath a couple of the two planks of wood on the edge of his deck. And that worked really well. So we want to have an exercise where we feel extremely stable while doing it. And that's just something to be mindful of with all the exercises in order to adequately have the stability because isometrics is inherently a great stabilizing exercise in its own right. Lots of times people will be like, okay, here I go for curls. And all of a sudden their body tip tilts or twists or it's shaking back and forth. You're automatically building stability very well with isometric training. So you don't necessarily need to do anything aside from just being mindful of how stable your setup is as far as equipment and your technique. You want to use things that are more stable. Okay, so that's your stability. Now, proficiency, we're doing it for strength. So we're here for muscular output. We're trying to keep the strength level high. So for this, your durations are short and your output is just as much as you possibly can go for. Really, really high. So I recommend about five, six seconds maybe of a, of a hold and give yourself adequate rest. You don't need a lot of rest with isometrics because it's not that fatiguing, but keep the output very high and the duration short. Now with isometrics, you can have a high output even if you have a long duration, but in general, you're still gonna have more output if the duration is shorter. You're not gonna subconsciously uh, um, pace yourself. Because if I say, okay, do this for 30 seconds, you may be like, yeah, I still max out with the tension and just kind of burns out over time. And you can do that, but you're generally going to create a stronger stimulus for muscular output in how much strength you have if you keep the duration short. So short duration, max output, make sure to breathe, make sure everything's tightened up, irradiation, good integration of throughout your whole body. Keep practicing that until you feel like, all right, muscles are starting to get really worn out. If you're using a Isomax from Dragon Door, you're going to have a fairly high number on the load setting. And once you're failing to really get that threshold and it's no longer beeping, that's your quote failure. That's one of the great things about the Isomax is it brings failure, quote unquote, to isometric training. And then once you're done with that, then you just have your capacity phase. Now you can go for longer durations. So set a timer for 30 seconds, 20 seconds, 40 seconds, something like that. And you just burn the crap out of the muscle. Just hold it until it's quivering bowl of jelly. And you do that once or twice. And there you go. So that's what we're looking at for integrating grind style for isometrics. You have a couple of warm up sets, moderate amount of intensity. You want to make sure you're using stable techniques and equipment. And then for the strength and proficiency phase, you have short durations, max output as much as you can. And once that starts to go downhill, 
then you go right into your higher capacity stuff and burn things out. That's how you apply the grind style method to isometrics for building as much muscle and strength as you can. Let's get to some more questions here. Samsara0125 saying, not really a fitness question, Matt. Feel free to skip it. I don't know. Answer any questions you guys want. As a childless man in my mid-30s, I've been dealing with my pressure of many with the pressures of society. When are you settling down? So forth. Any advice? Hey, dude, I, I feel you. I get you. Um, I mean, I've always been kind of a little on the outside of this one. Like I've never had any desire for the white picket fence, 2.5 kids, nine to five kind of lifestyle. Even when I was young, like when I was in uh, grade school, I was like, I never want to get married. I never want to have kids. I don't ever want to have a big house, mortgage, nine to five, 40 hours, all that sort of thing. Like that's what I grew up watching my parents do. And it was fine for them, you know, but that's the environment I grew up in. And for whatever reason, it just, it wasn't my path and still isn't right. I still have no desire to get married. I don't have kids. No, I have no desire to have kids, nothing against them. It's just not my path. It's not what I'm here to do. And, uh, you know, I don't ever necessarily want to own, you know, a house that kind of ties me down. I want to be able to move at a moment's notice kind of, thing. I've always been unconventional like that. And yeah, you're going to get some of those quote pressures from people saying like, don't you want this? Don't you want that? Don't you want it to be this way and that way? But the thing is, when you know what you know, what you want, then you have much more of a fortitude to be like, no, I don't want that. You know, and there are people who are going to maybe give you guff, but that's on them because they don't understand it from their perspective. Whenever someone is telling you like, oh, you're, you're going to want kids someday. Oh, you're going to want the house. Oh, you're going to want to get married and things like that. I always tell people, they're like, didn't you ever want to get married? And I was like, never met anybody I wanted to marry. Like for me, marriage was never a goal, <laughs> never an objective. If I go my entire life and never get married, I will have zero regrets on my deathbed. Now, if, but at the same time, I'm open to it. You know, I'm not saying I would never get married. Oh, that's the worst thing for you kind of thing. I just, I will get married if I meet someone that I want to marry <laughs> kind of thing. Because that was my father's example. You know, I always lived by his example. He was like, I never wanted to get married until I met your mother. And that point, I was like, I really want to marry this woman. And he did. And they're still together. They've been married over 50 years. And I figured that's the way I'm going to go. Like marriage has never been a goal, like an objective or anything like that. And that's just in general with society. You know, there's a lot of expectation that's just kind of out there. And not anybody's saying it specifically, but we kind of perceive these things like this is how you're supposed to do things. This is how you do a job. This is, you know, you get up, you go to school, you get a job, and blah, 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 blah. These are the steps you take and stuff. And that's fine, but it's not so much to be against anything. But if you recognize something better that you want, you go after that. So for example, technically I don't have a job anymore, right? <laughs> I mean, I have, I work for a guy at a gym, you know, the calisthenics gym, but technically I'm a contracted worker. So I have my own business and I don't work for him. He just gives me some work to do and I do it for him kind of stuff. I have a Red Delta project, the books I write and everything. I don't have a job. I don't have a nine to five. That's why it's Saturday afternoon here and I'm quote working. And people are like, doesn't that suck? Your, your work six days a week, because I usually keep Sundays free, even though I still, you know, write and do things on Sunday. Like, doesn't that suck? I'm like, no, this is what I've always wanted. 
you know, the nine to five grind that I've always been like, I don't want this. I don't like this. Even in school as a kid, I hated the idea of like, okay, life time out. I got to go to school and I got to do all this stuff that people want me to do. And then I come home and I'm like, okay, life time in. And now I can live my life again. I'm like I hated that aspect about school and that taught me, I don't ever want to do a nine to five. I'm more than happy working 80 hours a week. If it's on my own schedule, if it's on my own time, that's what I always wanted. I'd never wanted work-life balance. I wanted work-life integration. And once I recognized that and understood, oh, that's what I want, then I pursued it. And people who are very forgiving of you pursuing what you want, even if it means shunning something else. Okay? I want this work-life integration. You don't want a job? No, I want this integration. Oh, okay, then you do you. So get more clear is what I'm getting around to. Get more clear about what you truly want in life. How do you want to live? What's your family life like? Your social life? Your daily schedule? What are your priorities for your life? It's your life. You're the one living it, right? What do you want? And then pursue that. It's that old, you know, the life of happiness movie, Will Smith kind of thing. You know, you know what you want, you go after it, period. It's that thing. Get more clear on what you want. And if that means forsaking some of the other norms of society, no one's going to bat an eyelash if you say, yeah, I know that's there, but I want this other thing instead. That's what I want. And that no one can criticize someone going after what they want because they are a person on a mission and you're not going to have any more pressure once that happens. Matt C is saying, Matt, favorite body weight leg exercises. Uh, the hover lunges are classic for me just because my hip strength and mobility is fairly low. So hover lunges, or some people call them other things. Basically, it's like a shrimp squat, but you're not holding your leg behind you. You're just keeping it as an isometric hamstring curl. So the knee comes down and then back up. And uh, I did, oh, no, we were talking about weighted the other day. So that was the last weighted exercise I did yesterday. It's holding a dumbbell. And you just squat down on one leg, touch the knee to the floor, and then stand back up. That's a really good one. I like that exercise a whole heck of a lot, especially because it really helps me with my hip stability, which is... Man, that's plagued me my entire life. <laughs> that's been pretty bad. And only in the past couple of years has it actually gotten. Carol Grimm saying, hey, Matt, how would you fix weak upper back only on one side? My right side feels loose and stable while I have a hard time activating my back in my left. So the, the activation exercises are a good place to go because the activation exercise, and again, folks, Make sure you subscribe to the channel. Make sure you get the notifications on because I've got more videos that explain this stuff in more detail coming out on the RDP YouTube channel this week. And I'm going to be posting a video on my favorite activation exercises. And one of the things that's so telling about activation exercises is how good your activation technique, uh, your ability to engage muscles really is. Because when you're doing your pull-ups and your push-ups and your lunges and everything like that, it's like, yeah, sure, the muscle's working as it should. Yeah, I'm sure I can engage the muscles. Well, you know, it's, it's working. It's it's fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. Right? But the thing is, once you do some of these exercises and you're like, okay, engage the back. Um, back's, uh, back's not really engaging. Uh, you know, and I'll tell the clients, they're like, you should feel that in your lats. And they're like, I, I kind of don't. I'm like, well, there you go. That means that when you're doing dynamic stuff, your engagement is even worse than that. So you want to be using some of these isometric 
muscle activation exercises to just get those muscles working. Because I can almost guarantee you, if you were doing an isometric activation exercise for your back, you would probably feel, what is it, your left side's not engaging very well? Your back, your right side would be like, boom, really like, woohoo, all right, that's engaging. And then your left side would be like, <laughs> like crickets. So these activation exercises are the best way to get the muscle to fire up and on. Because as I said before, everything about your training proficiency and ability is based on activation, your neuromuscular engagement. And most people never work on it and it's always terrible and it's always bad and it's always gonna hold you back and it's gonna compromise your safety and it's gonna compromise your strength and your muscle growth and it's never going to get better until you actually work on it. Sometimes it can get better through just blind luck. It does happen, but I don't like leaving results to chance. Neither should you, you deserve better than that. So these activation exercises, and I know you're saying like, just give us something. So there's two that I recommend. One is you take like an ISO trainer, loop it around your feet, your seat on the floor, and you just pull like this, an isometric row. That's gonna tell you a lot about your back, a lot. And it's gonna improve very quickly too, if you practice that. If you don't have an ISO trainer, you can use like a martial arts belt, you can use towel, First time I ever tried that, you just used a bed sheet, or you can even just lay on your back on the floor and drive your elbows into the floor behind you. You're not getting much of a grip or bicep workout, but you are getting your back worked out. And for that, uh, you don't need anything. You just lay down your back and you're trying to drive tension into those muscles. Do that before every workout you do. And I think in a week, you're gonna be very, very happy with the improvements. Ryan Fenton is saying, hey, Matt, what do you think about utilizing a full intensity, excuse me, utilizing a lower intensity full body isometric routine daily to develop a foundation of neuromuscular drive you're talking about? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So one of the <laughs> one of the benefits I have as a coach and a trainer is I will, you know, meet first clients of the day. I'm like, okay, everybody, all right, we got our activation exercise for this and then activation exercise for that and then the lunge. And then this and that, okay, great. That's stage one done. You know, I do grind style with all my clients these days. But then I meet the next client, like, okay, everybody, and we're turning on this and I'm, and I'm doing it again, right? And even if I do it for like literally three to five seconds, I'm doing these activation techniques all day, every day. And let me tell you, that makes a hell of a difference real fast too. So I'm a big fan of it. But remember that with these activation exercises, as you pointed out, not very high intensity. You shouldn't feel like you're working the muscle. It's not about getting a good pump really hard. No, you're just turning it on. You're just engaging the muscle. You just, okay, it's on. Good. And that's it. That All it needs to do is be able to turn it on, get a little light burn going on. That's it. Because you don't want to engage your muscle to the point where it's working, then you're exhausting it. You just want to turn that sucker on. So I highly recommend it. And usually not so much even full body, excuse me, but pick one muscle that you're having trouble working. You know, there, there's a simple hip uh, workout that I give people. You can do it just standing up. It doesn't take anything. And just do that. Just one thing, one exercise, do it several times a day for a week and notice what a difference that's going to make. And then you can pick another muscle and another muscle. Because that's a great thing about muscle activation. You can always improve it. It's never an all or nothing like I don't have it and now I've got it. Good. Okay. I'm done. I don't need to worry about it anymore. No, you can always improve it. Even years later, you're like, oh, wow. Now I'm really using my glutes, right? 
you can get things to a much higher degree, which is why it's so great because some is going to be good, but you can always do more and it always can get better. Philip is saying, hey, Matt, unfortunately, I can't be on your live stream often because of the time difference. Yep, but I would pr really appreciate all your videos and books. Helped me a lot reassessing my whole training approach. Very good. Glad to hear it, Philip. And remember, folks, I always post the audio to these to the Red Delta Project podcast. So it's not live you know, to interact with me like this, but you can still tune in and get the ones you missed through podcast directory. It's also on the live tab on the Red Delta Project YouTube channel. So all of the past episodes I've got right there and free for you to listen to. Tebow is saying, hey, brother, how would you program for shift workers? I can usually get three to four workouts a week depending on my energy level. There you go, energy level. So remember, adaptive training is all about adapting your volume and your frequency and your exercise selection around what you have on a case-by-case -case basis. So this is why a lot of times people are like, will you ever make workouts for older people, younger people, beginners, more advanced levels, uh, shift workers, people who were, work late, people who work early. It's like, no, I'm not going to make workouts for these because with an adaptive approach, you're always doing things in the best way possible for you because there's also a ton of other things that are coming in play. You could be like, okay, how? what would my workout approach be if I'm fighting with my friends and losing sleep because I just got a new newborn? You know, do I need to write up a whole nother workout program for brand new dads? I'm sure it's out there. There's always a marketing gimmick out there, right? Do I need to make a new workout program for beginners who live in the Northern hemisphere? Because when I used to live in Vermont, you know, daylight savings, it would get dark practically at 3.30 in the afternoon. So we'd have much less sunlight and energy level and sleep and stuff would get kind of affected. Do I need a whole nother diet and exercise program for people who live north of you know the arctic circle or whatever there's a million variables that influence your ability to create a stimulus and so that's why you use an adaptive approach is because you just use whatever you've got based on your circumstances regardless of what that is shift work i'm older i'm younger i'm a beginner uh, you know i just had uh, a fight with the girlfriend and now i can't sleep or whatever there's a million things that are going to influence your energy level so that's why you do whatever you normally do but you change the volume based on what you can do. So with the grind style approach, remember that proficiency phase is you just keep going and practicing until you start to lose some of that proficiency. Now, if you're more tired because you're a shift worker and let's say you just had a real rough night, well, then you're just not going to do as much. You know, let's say you're, you're doing the uh, muscle ups and you get literally one set and the next set, you try and get up and you can't even get through the transition. You're just like, oh, I just don't have it today. Great. One set is all you do. Now, I'm not going to make it an official dogmatic program. I'm just going to say, yep, that's all you got today. Move on to the finisher or even skip it entirely if you want to save the energy. But then two days later, you could be like, I don't know why, but I just slept like a baby. I uh, got to bed a little earlier. Work is a little less stressful. I just got five sets of muscle ups. Great. Do that too. You, know, you base these things off of the energy level that you have. You do what you can with what you have. If you have more, you do more. If you don't have as much, you just simply don't do as much. It's that simple. And if you find that four workouts a week is leaving you more drained and you're not recovering as much, bring it down to three. You know, But if you're like, dude, three just doesn't feel like I'm satisfying enough. I want to work out more. Well, then do four. <laughs> it's that simple.
<clears throat> Matt C is saying, great coach for this, for the response. My favorite are sissy squats. Oh, I love the sissy squat. Uh, glute, ham raise, and assisted pistol squats. Good selection there, Matt. Very good selection. I wish I could do more sissy squats. I have an old injury on my right foot uh, that I suffered literally when I was 15, an old Taekwondo injury, and I think I broke my toe. But yeah, the big toe on my big, uh, my right foot doesn't bend back very far. So I can only get sissy squats once in a while when my foot's feeling at its best and I can only get a couple of sets. But even then I'll do a few sets and then all of a sudden that'll get irritated and it'll hurt and I have to stop. And I'm like, ah, sucks. You need to make, find some way to make it a little bit better. But, uh, oh man, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a struggle. But, oh, I love the sissy squat. But again, that's a finishing move. I don't do them fresh. I don't want to do them fresh. I do sissy squats to make my quads scream bloody murder. So I do them at the end of the workout so I can make it much easier to work the capacity of them a lot harder. Michael, drop weight daddy coming on. Say, Matt, how is your martial arts venture going? Very good, in fact. Funny that you should ask because a week from tomorrow, I am testing for my next rank. Very excited about it. It's been 10 years since I've tested. <laughs> 10 years, man. It's been I got my... I made um, fifth degree black belt over 10 years ago, almost to the month, almost to the month. And uh, I'll be going for my sixth degree in one week. So I'll let you know how it goes. Very excited about it. So very good. In fact, it's um, the best I've ever been as far as a martial artist. Uh, Scissor saying, hey, Matt, do you think rows and chins are enough for biceps? They can be for sure. So this is one of the things that we're looking at. So we're looking again at muscular output versus muscular capacity. Now you're asking enough for biceps, enough biceps for what? Are we looking at strength? Are we looking at size? A little bit of both? So yeah, you can certainly do a lot. It's not going to hurt to get some curls in. You, know, you get these dogmatic approaches out there. People like, oh, compound is all you ever need. And other people are like, compound is inefficient. You need curls kind of thing. Dude, with grind style, you don't have to choose. You get both. You can do both. Like I said today, you know, I was going with my archer style pull-ups and really working the strength aspect and the proficiency like crazy. But then afterwards I did rows and I was doing like rotations on it and stuff. And then I just blasted it out with bicep curls. Why choose <laughs> when you don't have to? It takes almost no extra time to just get in a couple sets of curls and doing some rows. So it's like, yeah, sure, all of it. Why compromise? Why limit yourself? Gary, it's good to see you again, Gary. We got to get a workout in sometimes out here. It's good to see you. Since I've been single and retired, my energy and motivation is through the roof. <laughs> Funny how that can uh, work out for you. Good job on that when it gets to retirement too. Because I know a lot of people when they retire or not only even retire, but uh, we saw this with COVID a lot when everybody was locked down and they're like, Ooh, I've got all this free time. And suddenly when they lack structure, they lack discipline because they don't have to make so many decisions and choices. A uh, couple of uh, clients that I don't train, but a friend of mine trains, they're, they must be financially independent or something, but they don't have like regular uh, nine to five or they don't have a very strong, steady work schedule. Man, they're always skipping workouts. They're always out late night partying. They're always, you know, calling him at the last minute. Sorry, man, I'm hungover, can't come in kind of thing. Be careful whenever we lose structure in our life. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of us, I sure can relate to it when I was a kid. Woohoo, summer break, summer vacation. Woohoo, I don't have any responsibilities. What would I do? 
total lack of any discipline whatsoever. Just watch TV, play video games. You know, dad would be like, come on, Matt, mow the lawn. I'm like, eh, I'll do it tomorrow kind of thing. Just your work ethic just nosedives because you have a lack of structure. But then later on, when I was a teenager, I started doing like summer jobs and stuff. It was so much easier for me to stay on my workout and stay eating well. And, you know, it's like, dad, you need the lawn mode this time? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, sure. I'll get to that kind of thing. So be wary of any life changes, my friends, where we lose structure and you have to impose the structure upon yourself to a degree. That's what happened when the COVID thing happened. And the gym I worked for, they were like, okay, we're going to shut down for like six weeks and everything. And a lot of my friends, they were like, oh man, we're just going to you know, do uh, you know, outside beer parties and everything. We're going to sleep in every day and we're just going to catch up on some video games and everything. I was like, this thing's not going to last forever. And when we do, a lot of people are going to come out of it in worse shape than they went into it. And that scared me. So I was like, I have to maintain some structure in my day. So I did what I usually do. I'm like, I'm not going to drink any alcohol until it's the weekend. I'm going to still get up in the morning and I'm still going to work. That's when I wrote Overcoming Isometrics was during that lockdown. I'm still going to have regular work that I'm doing. And I got a lot of work done. <laughs> and when lockdown ended, I was much further ahead than when I went into it. But I couldn't say the same thing for my peers. So be wary, my friends, of any type of life changes that remove structure from your life. If you don't have enough structure, it's real easy to backslide. See, a couple more here. Oh, man, these hours always go by so fast. I love talking with you folks. This is always the highlight of my week right here. No, no joke. No joke. Uh, thoroughly by, sorry, I can't pronounce that. Say, hey, Matt, been following for years and years and years and years. But very good. Appreciate the support. First time join a live session. So cool. Question, how can I be sure I've reached a plateau? What are the telltale signs? Well, my friend, technically plateaus don't exist. Your body is always changing. You're always adapting. You're different now than you were yesterday. Somehow, <laughs> something's always different. So you're always adapting. That's how a fundamental approach to fitness works is that it recognizes our bodies are always changing. We're always adapting. The fundamental processes that govern our health and fitness are always, well, in process. They're always doing it. All we do when we modify our diet or exercise program is we influence that process that's already happening anyway. Your body's going to be different now, a year from now, somehow. But when you get down on the floor and do your push-ups and you eat more fruits and veggies and stuff, you're saying, I'm going to be different. So I want to make sure I'm different in a healthier way or a stronger way or whatever, right? That's all fitness does is it says, we're going somewhere. Let's just make sure we're going in a direction we want to actually go to. We don't wake up one day and be like, oh boy, I didn't want to end up here kind of thing. So technically plateau doesn't exist. Second of all, don't be discouraged by plateaus because a lot of times a quote plateau means that what you're doing is still working to maintain the result you have. Right. So if you're like, oh, I can only do eight pull-ups, yeah, only in air quotes, I can do eight pull-ups and I can't seem to get more. Well, what you're doing is still keeping you strong enough to do eight pull-ups. There's no such thing as an ineffective workout, my friends. Everything you do is always creating a stimulus. It's just a question of to what degree is that stimulus being created. But if you're like in that plateau and you're eight pull-ups, eight pull-ups, eight pull-ups, eight pull-ups, congratulations, because a lot of people can't do that. A lot of people are eight pull-ups, woohoo! And three weeks later, they're like, how come I can't do eight pull-ups anymore? 
I mean, at the most I'm at four or five. So pat yourself on the back for being able to do that. And lastly, when it comes to your quote plateau is milk it for everything it's worth. Because a lot of times that means that your body is still adapting and adjusting to what you're currently doing. When you're climbing up Mount Everest, you know, as you do on the weekends, right? <laughs> when you're climbing up Mount Everest, you have to stop at base camps and, and uh, acclimate to the altitude. Right? You can't just climb it in one shot. So the ascent to Mount Everest is planned plateaus. You have to plateau. You're either going to be forced to or you plan it, but you have to stop going up at some point. And actually, when you climb Mount Everest, I didn't know this until a little while ago, but you actually go back down the mountain several times. So you go up and then down a little bit and then up and then up and then down a little bit. So even regressions are part of the process to go forever upwards. So when you're in a quote plateau, let your body acclimate to what you can do. Get used to it. Get really used to it. Get those eight pull-ups. Okay, fine, eight pull-ups. Get those eight pull-ups to the point where you can do them in your sleep till they feel like second nature. So you can barely even have to think about doing them because once you get really used to them, then you're going to find, oh, now I can do 10. That's how we get better is we get more used to what we're doing. So take it as the opportunity it is to be able to move forward in the future. It's weird, but the best way to make progress is to make sure you stay in a plateau for a while. Dave Clifford saying, hey, man, did a hit workout on Monday and the domes last for about three to four days. Do you have to go through domes to build muscle? No. So in order to build muscle, we have to challenge our muscular work capacity, how much work your muscles are doing. And that's a combination of time and tension, of course. Now, when you get domes, delayed onset muscle soreness, that's not necessarily from an effective stimulus. It's from a novel stimulus. Getting sore muscles doesn't mean you did anything effective. It means you did something different, new. I used to have an ab routine that would take me like 45 minutes. I needed to get my abs with every single angle and all these different exercises and all these different equipments and all these different machines. And I spent months doing this. I'm like, I'm going to have the perfect abs. I'm going to make everything work. I'm going to cover every single basis. And it was great. And then I went golfing with my friends and my abs were sore the next day. Why? Because I wasn't doing a golf swing in my ab routine. It wasn't sore because it was effective. It was sore just because it was new. And that may be what you did. You just worked them in a different angle or a different level of volume or intensity or something. So what it means is you just created a slightly different stimulus than what you were used to. That's what it means. And in order to build muscle, you have to challenge a progressive stimulus of neuromuscular work capacity. So you can go on the floor, blast out archer push-ups, and you're like, yeah, I got 10 push-ups, and I'm pretty sure I got more weight on that arm than before, and I was only doing eight. That felt really good. The next day, not be sore at all. Was it effective? Yes, because you had your muscles level up in their neuromuscular work capacity. You created a stronger stimulus for growth. Actually, arguably, as I mentioned in a video or, um, previously, that you actually made the stimulus happen previous to that, but I digress. But the, the soreness that you're feeling is a sign that you had a different stimulus. You get results from an effective stimulus. Now, sometimes different can be effective, absolutely. But it's a correlation, not a causation sort of thing. Oh, Dan Asek is coming on saying, hey, Matt, had a recovery revelation last week. Always worked out every other day. Went out of town, didn't work out for four days, came back, increased on every exercise, learned a lot. Yeah. 
and, and it's not even just that you recovered by resting. You went out of town, so maybe you also were able to sleep in because maybe you weren't working as much or you were able to go to restaurants and stuff. And you're like, I'm going to be a little looser on my diet. I swear, been training people for over 20 years. The time when people make the most progress out of the year is, the, is right after Thanksgiving weekend because they just spent four, maybe five days. Maybe they've got less time at work. They're sleeping in a little bit a little more laxed on the diet if they had a really restrictive diet. So they're eating a little bit more, maybe a little bit more sugar and carbs, a little more junk food, right? And maybe they skipped a workout. So they got more rest, more sleep, more food, and then they come back and boom, PRs through the roof. And they're like, what the hell? And I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> you gave yourself more rest, more recovery, more sleep and more food. Funny how that works kind of thing. And uh, it's a good thing. I mean, it doesn't always happen. You can't always do those sorts of things, but it is very telling. Andrea saying, hey, Matt, most people struggle with suspension training and they are stronger using bars. For me, it was always the opposite of that. How is that possible? Well, it depends on what struggle you're talking about, my friend. So when we're using solid bars, they're more stable. As I was just talking about earlier, you're going to be able to have greater neuromuscular output in regards to reps and weight when it comes to more stable surfaces. That's why like, if you're like, I just want to move a lot of weight and do a lot of reps and like use weight machines by far best get on the leg press. Don't do squats and lunges, get on the leg press kind of thing. Cause it's a very stable environment. But if you're talking about, I want to create a stimulus and I want to be able to make my body a lot stronger. And that also includes the need for stability in myself then yeah, the suspension straps are going to be. I, I tell new clients all the time at the body weight gym, like I'm warning you for, first and foremost, this progressive calisthenics thing, a lot of people don't like it. A lot of people get a taste of it and they turn tail and run. Why? Because for a lot of folks, it's the first time they're using their body in relatively unstable conditions. We're used to having our backs against a pad for bench presses and stuff, sitting on a leg press, uh, being able to do lat pull downs on a machine that's holding us down, that sort of thing. Now you got to stabilize yourself in space. Oh, people don't like that. People don't like that a lot because, oh, they're feeling like this. But the fact of the matter is you're creating stability in your body rather than relying on stability from an external low, uh, source. And if you can create more stability in your body, you will be stronger in the long run. So it's about what's the strength situation. Are you stronger on the machine? Yes. But are you actually stronger? No. You're using the suspension straps and you know how to stabilize your body. That's why you're stronger on the suspension straps. But when people initially use it, they may feel less stable and they don't have the patience or the discipline to make themselves more stable. Matsy's saying, you should climb the Rockies. I've been climbing the Rockies since I got out here. <laughs> Absolutely. If you get out here, it's uh, we'll take you to the Manitou England. It says, I want to go to Colorado, see the Rockies, Black Canyon, great sand dunes, etc. I've never been to the sand dunes yet. But uh, yeah, there's all sorts of great stuff out there on those mountains. Last couple of ones here. Daniel saying, hey, any advice? Elbow pain when doing pulling movements. I'm having some. Check out your back activation, my friends. Back activation is always something that many people suffer from. Back activation. Remember, we got a video coming out this week. Make sure you subscribe to the channel because uh, you're not going to want to miss some of these videos that I'm coming out with on how to use the grind style method for better activation, better stability, better strength better building muscle with everything, including the video I'm going to be coming out with on 
how to use the grind style method with classic weights because I've already got a ton on isometrics and the calisthenics as well. Last and not least, uh, the inner skin saying, hey, Matt, do you have any tips for ulnar nerve subluxation? Prevents me from doing dips on a straight bar. So I use rings or a V-bar. Yeah, I, I usually just <laughs> go with the rings for sure. Um, I rarely will use bars myself. I just find I get a lot better off of suspension straps. But yeah, if you've got something like that, of course, I'm, I'm sure you've seen healthcare professionals about dealing with that sort of thing. But if you're having a better approach with rings and suspension and everything, you're better off doing it that way. Do it that way, <laughs> for sure. Uh, I usually avoid more stable equipment because I want the stability to be in my body. I don't want to have to rely on the stability from the equipment. And again, I know I kind of juxtapose myself there, but with the isometrics, uh, we want to make sure we have stability with a good platform. Uh, that's a little bit different. We don't want the exercise to be compromised from the instability. We want it to be enhanced from the instability. Very fine balance between those two. But I need to run here, folks. Thanks so much for coming on. As always, resources down below, links to the fancy shirt that I'm wearing here uh, for my buddy's new uh, work uh, house, the design house that he's got, as well as the resources I talked about, my book, Isometrics, Overcoming Isometrics. You can also get it on the PDF form on the new RDP website and uh, their new web store. I've got also book bundles on the RDP site, uh, store. Blah, blah. Uh, so you can save money. I've got a grind style bundle. I got fundamentals of fitness bundle and I got a work smarter bundle. So you get four books for basically the price of two. And uh, you can also uh, check out the equipment that I recommend down below the world fit ISO trainer and the dragon door uh, ISO max as well. All right. I'm running out of words, folks. I will talk to you folks next time till then be fit and live free.